Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. This is the last of our summer break pods, so it's not news today, as you might expect. It's uh, questions, and we recorded this on the 20th of August. Uh, So if if there has been a big news story, we will catch up with that as soon as we are back next week. We are recording this, in fact, back-to-back with the one you listened to last week, uh, uh, but with a five-minute break in between, so I could have a bacon sandwich as well. Because obviously, all that talk of bacon sandwiches, Kieran, I, I had to go. But mine was the antithesis of yours. Mine was two slices of white plastic bread, four slices of bacon, little tiny bit of ketchup. Uh, Uncle Terry would not have looked down his nose at my bacon sandwich. You probably, I imagine, the Baroness cuts the fat off your bacon, does she? No, 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 no. She, she, she cuts the fat off her bacon, and I eat it. I, I love bacon oh, fat. So, so it's the best, isn't it? The, oh. the the best recipe my old man ever gave me was uh, baked beans cooked in bacon fat. Ooh. From oh, well, it, it is game changer. Game was changer. He, was he a cowboy? Your old man. <laughs> That's, um, well, Uncle Terry was more of a cowboy. Re- regular listeners will know about my um, <laughs> dispute with Chris Packham. Uh, the, the the signs were probably there earlier in the day when I was sort of looking after him on this TV show when he he's made this announcement saying that if we if we could there's cold weather coming up we should throw our bacon fat out for the for the birds in the garden it's like whoa 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 Chris I'll do a lot of things for this planet I'm not afraid <laughs> I'm not sacrificing my bacon fat for the but obviously he takes his things very seriously. Uh, questions, Kieran, and we've got some interesting questions today. And the first one comes from Jacqueline Hart. And Jacqueline says, with the World Cup stopping the domestic league from mid-November to around Christmas, does this mean there will effectively be two pre-seasons? Uh, if yes, would this be a, de- a decent additional revenue opportunity for lower division clubs? Well, th- th- you're absolutely right, Jacqueline, in that there are two pre-seasons for clubs in the Premier League and the Championship, uh, both of which are effectively going to go into hibernation during the course of the World Cup and then resume activities on Boxing Day. Um, yeah, Boxing Day is always a great day for football, but can you imagine what we're going to be like after you know, four or five weeks of not not having the opportunity to follow our teams? It's, it's going to be even, even crazier than ever. Um, but the, the matches taking place in League One and League Two are continuing. There's a full uh, there's a full palette of EFL matches. Um, there'll also, of course, be the the first and second round propers of the FA Cup mm. uh, taking place. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I know I know you disapprove of me sometimes going to watch other matches, Kevin. But I I, I can't cope with four weeks in November and December without any football. So I'll, I'll be going, I'll be, I'll be going, yeah, I'll, I'll, I will, I will go to watch an FA Cup match or two, I suspect. Um, and uh, so, so therefore there won't be uh, a pre-season opportunity for those clubs in those lower leagues because they're already playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. So uh, there's no way that the, um, the, the manager would be, be keen to have a, a pre-season against a bigger club. And also, uh, I, I think those bigger clubs, from what I understand, is that th- those players who are not going to the World Cup, uh, they are likely to be doing sort of, yeah, going to 
Dubai or going to do some warm winter uh, training uh, with with the rest of the squad in order to keep them ticking over there, and and therefore they won't necessarily be in the UK anyway. I, I don't disapprove of you going to other games, Kieran. That would be full. I had occasionally go to other games if if they're available. What I disapprove of is you buying the shirt of those teams at the other games and brazenly parading yourself up and down what passes for a pavement in Sussex. <laughs> um, uh, talking of other games as well, Kieran, I think we should uh, probably mention this as well. It's been a bit of um, a hoo-ha, should we say, about the price that QPR are charging for away tickets uh, yes. this season. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the the Premier League has had uh, an, a, a ticket price cap of £30 now for you know, four or five years. Now, the Football Supporters Association, whose who's views broadly align with ours on most things, you know, they've had a, a 20s plenty campaign, but the Premier League says, well, you know, 30s better than, than what we were charging in the past. So... Um, it does therefore seem strange that we've got clubs below the Premier League who who are charging more than that, and also as as you know, I I love going to Loftus Road. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a proper ground, um, and it, it was also the one hundredth away stadium that I went to watching with Brighton. So therefore, it's got mm-hmm. a special place in uh, in my heart. And we celebrated with a nil nil draw, as 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 the way that these things should should. Oh. Um, as much as I love going to QPR, the, the view's not the best, no. uh, to put it mildly. So uh, to get thirty-six, yeah, £36 coming out of your wallet, plus the cost of getting down from Hull and Rotherham, I know that these are two clubs in particular that have, have voiced uh, their dissatisfaction, uh, does seem very harsh. At the same time, a big shout-out to to the people at Hull. Um, they're running free coaches um, for, for fans who want to attend that match as, as a... As a as a means of uh, you know giving support to their fan base, and, and you've got to applaud the club in doing so. But it's it's it seems a daft decision by QPR. You know, it, you're trying to attract people to come to watch your your product, and, and charging prices which are I think difficult to justify um, is not really the way to go about that. And and uh, you know credit to those QPR fans. Who themselves they said, "Well, we're going to contact the club because we yeah. think it's unreasonable," and you know, there's a danger of it becoming a tit for tat arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, where, well, Hull say, "Well, you'll charge us thirty six pounds, um, so we're going to charge you the same," and then you get you simply just get a race to the bottom, uh, and, and it's the fans that lose out most of all. Well, also, and I'm sure a lot of our fans based in the rest of the country would agree with me. This is it's not the traditional London way, Kieran. The traditional London way is that you attract these people into your ground and then fleece them in there by charging <laughs> yes. three times as much as they would have to pay anywhere else in the country. So it, that that's what worries me, Kieran. Is it becomes a war of attrition? Is that mm. the other clubs, not necessarily Hull and Rotherham, will say, "Well, you know, sorry, QPR fans, but." We're going to charge you forty quid to to come to our games, and it's again, it's the fans because it's not. I think that's what Harlan Rotherham fans need to remember: is this is not the QPR fans doing this pricing. No. The QPR fans will be just as dismayed as as everybody else. Uh, again, I don't know how many more times we have to say it on this pod. It's it's the people who don't make the decisions are the ones that get shafted. Um, we have our question now, Kieran. I believe it's our first from Indonesia. Um, mm. And I hope, I have checked, and I think I'm correct, pronouncing uh, Michael's name correctly. It's from Michael Enrico Wijaya, uh, who says he's from Indonesia. Um, 
How nice to hear from you. And uh, Michael has closely followed Tranmere Rovers since quite a big portion of that club was acquired by the Indonesian company Santini. Uh, again, I love the, the reasons people have around the world for supporting clubs like Tranmere. Last season, Tranmere signed a deal to use Mills Sport Apparel, which is an Indonesian brand. What do you think of that deal in terms of value for the club, both in terms of sales and revenue? I think this is... Uh... This is a sign of the sort of the progressive nature of of Tranmere Rovers uh, in terms of how they are trying to compete in in the world of football, and it's not from charging away fans thirty six pounds. Um, so, so what what's happened here is that that following this this investment from Indonesia, what Tranmere are doing is they're they're giving something back. They're, they're going out to Indonesia and they're giving expertise in sports science, coaching in, in different parts of the country. Um, the, I think it's the, called the, the, the Wanandi family have, have invested in Tranmere in terms of buying a, an element of the club. Um, and on the back of that, because there's been some, uh, you know, the fact that Michael has decided to take an interest in Tranmere, that's also come from some other fans as well. In, Indonesia, is, Indonesia is far bigger than, than I think people in this country realise. Yes, yeah, huge. Um, so, um, you know, this uh, Mills have decided that they are going to um, support the club as well. Um, they can see the benefits back back in back in Indonesia itself, um, and. Uh, what what we've also seen is, if, if we look at Tranmere, you know, Tranmere were had a kit provider who was Puma, and, and I, I like Puma kits. You know, I, I think they're, they're they've always been slightly slightly you know edgy, slightly you know, we're not part of the elite uh, sort of group of of Adidas and, and Nike in the sense, that, and they've always tried to be slightly a bit more left field, but. Um, yeah, that that's good if you're one of Puma's senior partners. No disrespect to Tramir here. Tramir aren't. You know, Tramir have a have a, a loyal and committed fan base, um, and uh, they you know Tramir is also an all white kit, which which again has a a limit in in what you can do in terms of that. So by all accounts, the, the, the Tramir Rovers uh, they they were disappointed with the white kit that they were getting from Puma. Um, and, and Mills were given the opportunity to supply shirts on a more bespoke basis. Mm. And um, this resulted in, in what we would refer to as a, as a designed by you campaign, where uh, Tranmere Rovers uh, let the fans design the kits, and then they voted uh, on the kit, which Mills went and then produced and supplied. And this won some uh, this won some marketing marketing awards at the the Northwest Football Awards uh, last year. Yeah. So um, you know it's it's a two way relationship. It's a flexible deal. I don't think it's appropriate for me to to quote the numbers involved. You know that that's private between the club and and Mills. Um, but uh, you know they they're, they're quite a big company in Indonesia because they actually make the they actually make the the national team kits there. So um, I, I think it's. It's it's a sign of how to, you know all business success is built on relationships, and this has come first of all from Tranmere going to Indonesia, saying right, we're going to do some soccer schools here because we we're, we're involved in this conversation. They've got some investment back now. They've got this relationship with the kit manufacturer. Um, I, I think it's sort of a you know, a template for how clubs need to think uh, outside of the box to to build their revenues going forwards. Our next question comes from Sean Ford. 
And I have to say, Kieran, this is one of my favourite questions recently. Because, <laughs> uh, again, it's one of those where you think, that's, that's a really interesting question. Uh, also funny. Do footballers, asked Sean Ford, do footballers receive the same fringe benefits that normal employees get? Does Jordan Ayew get a 10% discount in the club shop? <laughs> can, <laughs> can Danny Welbeck get a free coffee at the concessions? Does Ben Foster benefit from the cycle-to-work scheme? I... I, I I, I would guess technically the answer is yes, but uh, it's just the, uh, just the image of Jordan Ayew ambling his, <laughs> ambling his way around the, the club shop asking for a ten percent discount. But it's it's a, I, I I presume at a lower level, Kieran, some of these fringe benefits for the less well off footballer would be most welcome. Uh, y- yes, yes, they would. Uh, you know, things like health benefits mm. you know, um, uh, are, are absolutely critical. Um, it will all be detailed in the in the terms and conditions of the contract of employment. Um, it it doesn't apply on a universal basis. Um, and here, I I give you the case of a Mr. Ibrahimovic, mm. who uh, who when he was looking at his pay slip. And I'm amazed that footballers bother to look at their paces, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> he, uh, he was at Manchester United. He, he looked at his payslip uh, when he was at that club, and he noticed that there was a £1 deduction in his payslip. So uh, being Ibrahimovic, he, uh, he, goes, uh, he, he phoned up at the manager and says, uh, could you explain this? And the manager goes, well, I don't know. So uh, eventually, he, he ended up speaking to somebody at Manchester United, and by all accounts, uh, Manchester United were were at a match, uh, and, and the previous evening they they'd all been located in a hotel, which is fairly standard. And um, Ibrahimovic had uh, had taken a bottle of juice, fruit juice, from the minibar. The hotel had charged the club. <laughs> the club traced it back to the player and said, uh, "We're going to charge you a pound." Um, and, and all I can just say is, I'm just, just, you know, uh, just, just, just be grateful that he hadn't bought himself a pint at West Ham, <laughs> because because that could have proven to be very, very expensive indeed. Um, and and he he in his most recent book, and and uh, you know, I've, I've read a couple of his books. There, they they're not the standard football. You know, I, I I listen to Genesis and eat steak and chips type of book. Um, he, he's he, he is entertaining. He's he's had a, a an interesting and, and and challenging upbringing at times. Mm. Uh, but he accused Manchester United of having a small and closed mentality, um, something which I'm sure the fan base would disagree with mm. in terms of their perception of the Glazers. Yeah, the the real James Milner is actually a very funny, interesting chap. But the the James Milner that we see on TV, I imagine that James Milner. He would he would ask for a ten percent discount in the club. He he knows what he's what is in his contract, isn't he? He'll he'll be taking a program away for nothing on it. <laughs> oh dear, well, that's, well, well, not, well, not, not we got the guard, guard dog. <laughs> oh, now opening the door to chase the postman. This is like a scene from a nineteen seventies. You took, sorry, you, about, sorry about that, listeners. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, it's literally like being in a 70s sitcom. The, the, I, I always, even as a kid, watching those programmes and reading cartoons, I thought, I've never I've never seen a dog. I've never seen a dog chase a bike or chase a postman. I've never seen a postman retreating down the garden path with a, the bottom of his trousers bitten off. You know, and, but apparently, it, no one else. 
And, and, and it is very weird because he knows the different footsteps because we've got a gravel path and we've got a shared 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 path, uh, a, sh- a shared drive um, with the next door neighbours. He he can distinguish the uh, the footsteps of my next door neighbour and his wife who are fine. Postman, he can tell, and he will he will go after the postman every single time. And yeah, he, he was just sitting under the table, and and as soon as he heard those the, the crunch on the gravel, uh, he was out there. It, well, it's the same with Boris Johnson and cars on gravel. That tends to get him out. Um, uh, I, I also remember 70s sitcom style. What happens when the vicar comes around or the chimney sweep? Because again, these I remember. I remember watching the sitcom and telling my dad, thinking, "Why? Why did we never get a chimney sweep coming around, Dad? The vicar doesn't come to our house. Our chimney sweep's great." What? He's, he's, he's brilliant. He's absolutely. We love him to bits. Oh my god! I, I was not expecting the answer to be that. Uh, I, you, you've got a chimney sweep, have you? Yeah. Okay. Oh, we've got a chimney. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. You can't have a chimney without a chimney sweep, can you? No, you you can't, Kieran. You, you're you're quite right. I don't know what I was thinking of. Really, does he does he tap dance on the roof, Dick Van Dyke style? <laughs> <laughs> Charles Robinson has a question, and all I can say, Charles, is welcome to my world here. Uh, Charles Robinson says, I was attempting to explain to a friend the other day the financial shenanigans at Derby and was telling them as best as I could about player amortisation. Could you explain firstly what this actually is? I believe that the cost of a player is divided by the number of years that the player has on their contract meaning that a player who costs £20 million on a four-year contract is worth £15 million the next season, then £10 million the next season, and so on. So you have got a grasp of it, Charles. But my friend, says Charles, asked me how the current value of a player affects this. Is that simply irrelevant for the purposes of amortisation? Um, Charles, you, you are exactly right. Um, the book value of a player in the accounts bears no resemblance to current value or market value. Because the way that it works uh, um, under the accounting rules is that w- when you sign a player, uh, you take the benefits of the player. And, and the benefits of the players, if, if the player is committed to a four-year contract and you pay £20 million, you're effectively getting the benefits of, yes, let's say, playing 40 matches a season, you're getting the benefit of 160 ma- matches of worth of the player. So under the accounting rules, unless you can prove there is a genuine market for the player, then... The, the amortization is charged on a straight line basis. So, so you correctly said you sign the player for £20 million and therefore you say it's, it's a four-year contract. So 20 divided by four gives us a £5 million amortization charge each year. Um, and that works fairly universally, but not totally universally. Um, we, we, of course, have the, the Derby County issue. And the way that Derby County would have dealt with that is Derby said, well, we are going to use what we consider to be the market value of players um, uh, as, as a means of determining their value and calculating their amortization charge. So, so what Derby happened to do, they said, well, we signed the player for £20 million. Pounds. At the end of year one, we think he's worth at least 19. So instead of charging 5 million amortization, we'll charge one. And in year two, they tended to do the same. And in year three, they tended to do the same. 
And and the benefit that this gave to Derby County over the first three years in which they implemented this policy, it reduced their amortization policy based on my calculations, between 25 and £30 million, which meant, of course, they could spend 25 to £30 million on other things at the club, such as wages and, and so on. You know, and and the, the objective was to, to get promoted during that period. The trouble is, if you charge £3 million in the first year, first three years of the contract, you've then got to charge £17 million in the final year to, to fully amortise the player. Um, and Derby's response to this, or rather Mel Morris's response to this, was, "I'm simply not going to publish any accounts." So, mm-hmm. so um, the the argument that's put forward by both cases, and I've had, uh, yeah, I've, I've had, I think it's fair to say disagreements uh, with uh, with the likes of Nick DeMarco, who was, uh, you know, in, and and I've got a huge amount of respect for Nick. Um, on, on all issues, he's saying, "Well, why can't we use market values?" and my response is, well, you know, I don't make the rules, but my perception of the rules is that unless there is an agreed market value of a player, you can't use it. Um, what is the map value of a player who you've had for 12 months? You know, what happens if the bit bobbins? Uh, has his value genuinely been £90 million after one year? Um, what Derby said, well, we're going to use transfer market uh, as, as one of the main uh, justifications of our market values of players. But then you've got to ask, well, where do transfer market get those figures from? They get them from the people that log into transfer market. So it's just random people around the world. They won't necessarily be watching the player. And the chances are they'll just be following somebody. Somebody's on Twitter said, this player's worth a lot of money, in which case I'll go to transfer market and repeat that. So it's 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 a flawed system. It doesn't represent where we are in the markets today. But the alternative is one which is very much open to manipulation. Now, I'm not saying that Derby did manipulate the numbers, but it just happened to coincide with a you know, 25 to £30 million financial benefit uh, as far as their FFP calculations were concerned. So book value and market value are different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's also the case for property. You know, if, if, uh, if, you, if you take a look at uh, the uh, Palace's uh, property assets in 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 the accounts, you know, you you've been at Selhurst for years and years, and that reflects the cost of building Selhurst at that time, plus any any improvements that have taken place in subsequent years. But it doesn't reflect what Selhurst is worth in twenty twenty two, and and that's just a flaw of, of accounting. There there are of, sorry one of many flaws that there are in accounting. Hmm. Okay, our next question comes from David Lork. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, David. Uh, If not, I apologise. David says, I'm a German living currently in New York doing a sport management master's and I hope to re-enter the industry later this year. Now to the fun stuff, he says. (laughs) As as Kieran thought, thought, you've just done the fun stuff. You're doing the sport management masters. That's the fun stuff. Uh, Since Kieran is a Brighton supporter, I was wondering if you could give some insights on Tony Bloom's acquisition of Royal Union Saint-Gilois. How is that arrangement going to work? Um, Tony Bloom does have a significant investment in Union SG, uh, in Belgium, but he 
is not involved in terms of the running of the club. He's, he's actually got effectively a business partner, business partner to whom he has delegated all of that responsibility. So whilst he is, I think he's in daily contact with Paul Barber at Brighton in terms of doing X, Y and Z, um, he, he is very much a hands-off approach with regards to the day-to-day running of, of Union SG. Having said that, Tony Bloom is, for people not familiar with his background, um, he uh, he op- operates an organisation called Star Lizard. Now, Star Lizard is a, a, a effectively a consultancy for very, very wealthy people who want to place wages on sport. And, and what's, what Star Lizard do is they they crunch the numbers. They go through all of those money ball features. And, um, you know, we we refer to uh, algorithms at the end of the show when we're saying, please, please give us a review. Uh, you know, the, the the number crunchers employed by Star Lizard are you know, true mathematical geniuses, as is, I'm not saying because he haven't stolen my club, as is Tony Bloom. You know, he is a ridiculously smart guy. He's, he's a maths graduate from the University of Manchester, and he is just one of these people who are naturally brilliant in terms of being four steps ahead uh, in terms of numbers. That's why he became a, a professional poker player, and, and that contributed to it. So he doesn't get involved with the club, but the 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 numbers which are crunched by Star Lizard um, may or may not be, and I say that for contractual reasons, may or may not be potentially then taken advantage of by Union SG when when they are recruiting players. So so when when Bloom bought uh, uh, Union, they were in the second tier of uh, Belgian football. They then went on to to win the uh, the, the Belgian Jupiter Super League uh, last season. But that doesn't guarantee you um, participation in the Champions League because uh, they have this strange system that once the league positions are sorted, they then have a series of playoffs. And Mm -hmm. I think it's the winner of the playoffs goes into the Champions League um, and, and Union... That they they played Rangers in in the knockout uh, to 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 try to get into the Champions League group stages. They won the first leg two 0 Rangers came back and won the second leg three 0 in which was by all accounts uh, from from some of my Rangers fans one of those nights in Ibrox, and uh, you know you can imagine it being quite a uh, quite quite a uh, uh, an emotional evening for all involved. Now, our next question comes from Martin Coker. It's our penultimate question. It's a slightly morbid one, uh, and it also will put Martin Coker ahead of the queue as prime suspect in any subsequent <laughs> uh, police investigation. Uh, Martin Coker says, I want to ask about Spurs' ownership. What would happen if the current owner, Joe Lewis, were to pass away? I'm not trying to bump him off, but he's in his 80s. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Joe Lewis... Uh has has been very successful from his from his upbringing in London. Uh, he's eighty five years old, and he uh, he's significant a significant investor in, in a company called Tavistock. Tavistock controls Enic, which in turn controls uh, Spurs. Um, should Mister Lewis pass away, and uh, yeah, we, we we wish him a, a long and you know, happy future uh, from 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 the age of eighty five, um, then ultimately that there, there will be. Uh, he will have a will. Um, it could be that there are uh, succession plannings in, in, in the sense that uh, the, the shares in Enoch, there could be a first refusal 
for those to go to uh, Daniel Levy uh, at an agreed price in in respect of of Spurs, or it could be that the shares will be inherited by his children, and then it's up for them to decide uh, whether they want to continue that relationship by being owners, or do they want to to relinquish control through a sale. So you know, it's 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 a private matter uh, in terms of his succession. Um, but uh, you know he is a he's he's again a very very smart guy. Um, he will have made these succession plans, and uh, that there will be as as always an army of silver tongued friends to make sure that they are uh, applied to the letter. Our final question, Kieran, comes from Mike Dunn. Uh, it's about a club we've talked about a lot, uh, Newcastle. And mm. Mike Dunn says, after Mike Ashley closed all of Newcastle's club shops, except for the one in the stadium, the new owners appear to be reversing this and are planning to open off-stadium shops once more, which must be good news for commercial revenue. My question, though, is around FFP implications. As spend on infrastructure is excluded from FFP calculations, does that include commercial infrastructure such as a new shop or even hotels and hospitality venues that in turn help generate additional income? And if spending on commercial infrastructure is not excluded, where is the line drawn given that new stadiums have a host of such outlets these days? Yep. Um, well, I think the, the the good news, I think, Mike, from, from your uh point of view is that all infrastructure spending uh, is exempt from profitability and sustainability stroke FFP rules so therefore um, Newcastle can buy Newcastle can build as many mega stores as many hotels as they wish and uh, none of those costs will count against the club in terms of building up future revenues Um, in terms of, of Mike Ashley um, over the, you know, Mike Ashley, uh, yeah, I know he's not popular with Newcastle fans. He, he is a very successful retailer. And we've had a succession of questions here about successful in, successful individuals. Um, certainly in terms of Sports Direct, it has been a, a, a very, uh, very lucrative business for him. Um, and this brings us back to the issue of uh, Newcastle United over the the fourteen years of Mike Ashley's ownership, commercial income during which was a pretty a pretty golden period for the Premier League. You know, its popularity and, and the, mm. the TV rights grew uh, at ridiculous levels. Um, his commercial income went up from twenty six to twenty eight million pounds over fourteen years, which which is actually below inflation during that period, which I think is indicative of. Um, there was uh, a flawed strategy. Now, that, that could have been due to the deterioration of the relationship between owner and fan base. But uh, I think it is certainly one area which the new owners are very keen to address. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, then that would be very kind. Go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Normal service will be resumed after our summer break from the next pod. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you very much, Patreons. Thank you for everybody else for the support for the show uh, and uh, and uh, you know the, the the interactions that you have with us through through email, through social media, and so on. Um, if, if you want to support the club, uh, want to support the, the pod through through Patreon, that's fantastic. Uh, it's as little as one pound a month, or should I say one pound twenty a month? Apologies for the VAT, completely outside of our control. Um, 
There's another way of doing it, though. Uh, you can go on to your podcast app and, and you can leave us a review. You can leave us five stars. It really helps us in the charts. I think, I think we're averaging 4.9 out of five, which mm. is uh, very which, good, which, which, is, which is very kind of you. Um, but the other way uh, you can do that as well, if, uh, if, if you want to leave a comment, the comments don't count towards the charts. They don't count towards the algorithms that Apple and Spotify say. Um, so you, you could even say, therefore, that you would rather have the show presented by Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Emma Raducanu, which I think will be a, an interesting and unusual meeting of minds. And, and, I, and I'd listen to that personally. Yeah, I, I believe Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a Macclesfield fan, isn't he? I understand. Is he? Oh, God, I, oh, I, didn't know I that. think so. Yeah, I believe so. It's one of those things where he was on Soccer AM and they, they gave him a club and he, he quite liked the sound of it and carried on being a Macclesfield fan. So, yeah, I have no news on who Emma Raducanu uh, supports. It's probably Brighton. Because she plays tennis, I don't know. That would seem well, it's got to be Wimbledon, then, surely. Oh yeah, fair point. Oh, yeah, fair. Well, well done, Kieran. You zinged me. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Buy some football.